Well, good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the elders at Grace Chapel, and it's my privilege to preach from the Scriptures this morning. Uh, Hopefully, we can accomplish three things this morning. First, we want to review a little bit of what we've seen in 1 Samuel so far. And second, we're going to follow some connections within the text that show just how amazing the Bible is. And third, we're going to explore how a spiritual revival from 3,000 years ago might have something to say to us. Are you ready? Well, then let's mount up. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 7, and I will uh, read that text. And something I learned this morning is that last time I preached, I didn't need these, but now I do. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Amminadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand <clears throat> that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering the Philistines drew near to attack Israel but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful, and it's instructive, and it helps us live lives that are meaningful 
and lives that bring glory to you. And I pray that as we consider this text today, that you, by your Spirit, would speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. So 1 Samuel, it's history, and it's literature, and it's theology. By that I mean the author's picked particular events to record and intentionally and purposefully, they arranged them so that the hearers and the readers would think certain theological thoughts. And one of the ways they did that is by embedding within the text what amount to hyperlinks. Obviously not hyperlinks like we know them, but rather clues, sort of literary breadcrumbs took the reader's mind to other ideas and texts with which they were familiar. Now, to create these hyperlinks, the biblical authors had to devise literary means to make those connections, to direct the reader's minds to those ideas and texts. So they used repetition of certain words. They would make word plays. They drew connection to biblical patterns. They used geography. They were aware, as Mark Twain famously said, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so they would point out those instances where the scriptures rhyme. And they would help us to explain, they would help explain to us what the patterns mean. So here's an example of this from 1 Samuel. It's the example of Eli and his two awful sons. Remember them? Hophni and Phinehas? Well, they were profaning the sacrifices, they were sleeping around, and while that's bad enough, their dad, Eli, didn't correct them. And so the Lord judged them, and they were killed when the ark was stolen by the Philistines. Now, that story is a hyperlink. It's meant to take us somewhere else in the scripture, and one of the places where our minds are to go is way, way back to Leviticus chapter 10, and Aaron's sons. His son's names were Nadab and Abihu. And in that story, Aaron's two sons show contempt for the Lord. And lo and behold, fire comes out from the glory of God and it consumes them both. So like Nadab and Abihu, Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel are two sons of a priest who think they can ignore what God has commanded. So what should we make of a hyperlink like that? Well, the author of 1 Samuel is preparing his readers for something like this to happen again. So, spoiler alert, it won't be long before we encounter another leader of Israel who will fail to teach his sons to follow Yahweh, and there will be unfortunate consequences. Another hyperlink is in 1 Samuel 1. There we learned that Elkanah and his two wives, remember them, Peninnah and Hannah, and that Hannah had no children, and Peninnah did have children, and this was a source of pain and tension in the family. Well, have we ever seen something like that before? Is there a hyperlink there? Well, sure. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham had two wives. Remember them? Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was barren. Hagar was not. And that was a source of tension, just like here in 1 Samuel. 
And later in Genesis, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. In that story from Genesis 29, it looks like we have another hyperlink. Remember, Rachel was barren, Leah was not, and the consequences of their rivalry leaked into the rest of the biblical story. So what do the biblical authors want us to ponder when they draw our attention to these biblical patterns, these hyperlinks? Well, at the very least, they want us to think about what came right after, about what the Lord did next. After both the Sarah and Hagar incident and the Rachel and Leah episode, the story of redemption took a huge jump forward. Just after Sarah and Hagar, Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac at Moriah. Remember that story? And it was from there that the Lord advanced redemption history with his promise to Abraham to multiply his offspring and bless all the nations through him. After that, Rachel and Leah, after that, and it comes the Rachel and Leah episode, what happened next? Well, Jacob has 12 sons. And they become Israel. And in this climactic scene from Genesis 35, Jacob calls his household together and he says, put away your foreign gods. That sounds familiar. For they were going to travel, excuse me, to Bethel, where God was going to appear to Jacob and make him a promise. Let me read this promise. A nation... And a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. Oh, a pillar of stone. That's interesting. We should hold that thought. So, what might our first Samuel text and the other two wives and the two wives pattern be asking us to consider? Well, maybe we should be looking for what's going to come next. Is the Lord going to use this time as a leap forward in his redemptive story? And should we be looking for some offspring of Abraham, a king? from Jacob's body to arrive on the scene? And will there be more stone pillars? Well, the climax of today's text occurs by a memorial stone, a kind of pillar. It's an Ebenezer. And it's a testimony of the Lord's deliverance in the battle against the Philistines. In chapter 7, we read this. So Samuel took a single stone, put it between Mizpah and Shen, And he named it Ebenezer and said, up till now, the Lord has helped us. Now, this isn't the first Ebenezer that we've come across. In fact, the disastrous events from chapter 4 begin at an Ebenezer. Remember this in chapter 4, verse 1. Israel went out to meet the Philistines for battle. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Okay, so now we know that if we see two occurrences of a word like Ebenezer or a stone pillar, we should be suspicious that the writer 
is doing something intentional. It feels like a hyperlink. And it seems like the writer is inviting us to compare the disastrous battle with the Philistines in chapter 4 with Israel's remarkable deliverance from the Philistines in chapter 7. And so it seems that the author wants us to recognize that these two episodes are situated at different places along a cyclical pattern of defeat and deliverance from the book of Judges. Now, you remember, of course you remember, when Ben preached 1 Samuel chapter 4, he described this pattern of defeat and deliverance. He noted that the the cycle has four different stages, and uh, should be on there to read. At the top, the, the stage of idolatry and apostasy. That's where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And from this, the people's sin leads to judgment, defeat, and oppression. That's the one to the right. So the people cry out to God in repentance, and he brings revival. And then as we complete the loop, he brings his presence to the people, and he produces deliverance and peace. Now, this pattern happens over and over again to Israel. They never seem to get out of the loop. And because that pattern characterizes so much of what's in the book of Judges and Samuel, it's helpful to think about chapter 4 and chapter 7 through that lens. Chapter 4 begins with Israel going up to attack the Philistines. They're really confident in their own capacity to wage war. In their arrogance, they don't look to the Lord's counsel, they don't ask for his help, and they're defeated. You recall that they attack again, only this time they carry the ark into battle. It's like they're trying to coerce Yahweh into fighting for them. Or even worse, they act like the ark is a magic box that they can scare the Philistines with it. But in the end, the ark is taken. Now, Yahweh... He delivers the ark by himself and brings it back to the people. But for the next 20 years, the people of Israel live in spiritual darkness and in the fearful shadow of their Philistine oppressors. So here's a question. Where in the cycle of defeat and deliverance would you place the people of Israel in chapter 4? Well, defeat and oppression. Now let's compare that to chapter 7. In verse 2 of chapter 7, we read this, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So Israel has spent 20 years in a kind of spiritual limbo and under the thumb of the Philistines. But something is stirring. Something is stirring in the people of God. They are lamenting after the Lord. Now the Hebrew word here is used dozens of times in the Old Testament. And in nearly every instance, there's the idea of mourning a loss or a death. In fact, the Hebrew word is often used to describe people's behavior at a funeral. So the people of Israel are beginning to mourn 
their own spiritual deadness. It's taken 20 years of wallowing in their own idolatry to bring them to a place of spiritual mourning. But something seems to be stirring in them. They're being revived. And then something really amazing happens. God's people respond to the stirring of their souls. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Now notice, their response involved action. Israel joined their words and affections with action. They behaved in accordance with their intentions. Now this is exceptional in the history of Israel. It's different than so many other episodes in their history. In fact, I think we're meant to hyperlink this episode to another episode at a stone pillar from Joshua 24. Here the author is taking us back to a time many generations before Samuel's day. And here's what we read. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Then Joshua took a large stone, set it up by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words that the Lord spoke to us. So Joshua, he records here that Israel said that they would serve the Lord. They said that they would put away their foreign gods. But they didn't. Their words were not matched with action. And as a consequence, Israel entered into one of the darkest periods in their history. Because words without follow-through are a lie. But in today's text, it's different. In 1 Samuel 7, the people act on their words. Verse 4, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. Okay, so just who are Baal and Ashtaroth? Well, in Canaanite religion, Baal and Ashtaroth were, among other things, they were gods of war and of fertility. So it was customary to make offerings to these gods in order to ensure healthy crops and livestock, victory in battle, so you'd have big families. They were the gods of money and power and sex. And it wasn't the Israelites were ignoring Yahweh, it's just that they treated him like he was just one god among many. But now as Israel is being revived, they're setting aside those gods and serving the Lord only. Israel's being revived. They've responded to the stirrings of the Spirit 
But not only that, they've taken steps to establish this new way of being Yahweh's people. They know that sustaining spiritual momentum requires vigilance. So what did they do? Look at verses 5 and 6. Samuel said, gather all the people. I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So look at that. Israelites gathered. They poured a libation of worship. They fasted. They corporately confessed. And they submitted themselves to God's prophet. These are the actions of a people who are serious about leaning into their revival. But then comes opposition. The Philistines see the people are gathered and they think this is either a threat or an opportunity. In any case, they advanced against Israel and Israel's afraid. But unlike back in chapter 4 when the people responded arrogantly, here the people cry out to the Lord and they seek his protection. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. Now I read that, I have the sense that as things were about to go down, the people of Israel were not fixated on the advancing Philistine army. It just reads to me like their gaze was on the sacrificial lamb. And when Samuel killed the lamb, and when the fire transformed the lamb into smoke, and when the smoke rose to heaven, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he cut loose the thunder, and the Philistines were destroyed. So that's the story of 1 Samuel 7. What are some things that we might be able to take away from what we've read and apply to our own life as people of God? Let's talk about being revived. What have we learned? First thing, revival begins with lamentation and mourning. If you and I want to see revival in our own hearts and in the church, We need the Spirit of God to slap us with a spirit of mourning. We need to ask the Lord to bring us to a place where our idolatry and the sin that's in the church smells like death. Like Israel, we need to mourn our spiritual deadness and put aside our spiritual arrogance. Second, when the Lord stirs, we must act. Revival isn't passive, it's responsive. Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths. 
How about us? Are we ready to put aside the idols of money and power and sex and status? Are we ready to stop seeing our faith as just another thing we do? As just one of many competing interests? As just another tool to get us our best life now? Am I ready to forsake the greatest idol, the idol of myself? That idol says, no matter what, I must get my way. That idol says, I must satisfy every twitching desire that bubbles up from my soul, or else I will be unfulfilled. And what could be more terrible than for me to be unfulfilled? Am I ready to give up these idols and replace them with single-minded, intentional devotion to Jesus? Fourth thing, being revived invites opposition. A revived life is a repentant life, and repentance leads to holiness. And holy people are strange people. And holy people are hated people. Just ask Jesus. And it's not just people who hate holiness. Behind the idols of this world are principalities and power for whom the thought of a revived people of God elicits fumes of hate and fear. Being revived, it invites opposition. I'd like to close by going back to the cycle, the cyclical pattern of defeat and deliverance. Idolatry and apostasy, defeat and oppression, repentance, revival, deliverance, and peace. In our text, Israel's come full circle, haven't they? Deliverance and peace come. Verse 14, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Peace, deliverance, and peace. So question, where are you on this cycle? Are you living in deliverance and peace? If you are, be grateful. And like Samuel, keep crying out to the Lord that the Philistines in your life would be held back. Are you somewhere else in the cycle? Do you have idols that need dealing with? Is there sin that just needs forsaking? Or maybe have you just given up? Is it defeat that might characterize where you're at now? Well, there's good news. There is a way out, a way out of the cycle, a way up, and it's through the way of mourning. It's through acknowledging that what might once have felt alive, now it smells dead. But there's hope, even in that, Because someone who's dead can't smell anything. Feeling lost is a sign of life. It's a sign that you can be revived, that the Lord can still do a work. And in the end, the path to deliverance and peace is not really a path, but a person. 
And it's through the resurrection power of Jesus that we can be revived and we can live in the deliverance of peace, in deliverance and peace. Ask him to revive us. Ask him to revive you. Ask him and he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, bring revival. It's scary because it asks us to be something that maybe we're not. But we do want to be what you've called us to be. We want to be salt and light in our world. And we can do that if you will breathe life into us. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.